in our Wednesday night class uh, that I've been teaching a couple for the last couple of weeks uh, called Baptist Distinctives. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea of biblical authority, that the Bible alone um, and the importance of the Bible alone being our sole true source of authority, being what it is that we determine our faith by and what it is that we determine um, really how to live our life. And so we've talked about that. And uh, for that to work means that we have to allow the Bible to interpret itself or we have to use the Bible to understand difficult parts of the Bible. So when you come to a biblical passage that is hard to understand, you you have to allow other parts of Scripture that are more clear to you to allow you to uh, to see that passage clear, to shed light on that passage. And so um, that sounds kind of odd. It sounds kind of different uh, than most people or most things that we understand. And it may sound confusing, but today that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to take a passage of Scripture um, and we're going to use this opportunity to see this in action. Then we're going to allow it to shed light on another passage. You see that what you just saw in that video is a passage from the New Testament where Jesus is sitting there. He's surrounded by a whole bunch of, of religious leaders. And, and one of them, they're honestly all trying to trick him. They're trying to capture him and make him say something that they can use against him. Um, they were the dirty politicians of the first century. And so they're always looking to take something out of context that he said. And, and so they're asking him all these questions. And so one of them asked him, the question of all the commandments, which one is most important? Now, when that guy asks that question, he's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the 612 or 613 commandments of the Old Testament, all right, depending on who's counting. Which one of those, Jesus, if I was going to spend my time and my energy, if I was going to focus on just one of those, which one is most important? In fact, let's just narrow it down to the first ten, the big ten. If I was just going to focus on one of the big ten, Jesus, which one is most important? Which one should I pay the most attention to? And Jesus gives him this really unexpected answer. One that he, he didn't kind of see coming. And in fact, you saw it in that video there that he doesn't pick one of the 612. He doesn't even pick one of the top tens. Instead, what he does is he goes back to a passage in Deuteronomy called the Shema, which for for Jewish people is the John 3.16. It is the most famous passage of Scripture in their whole Bible. And so he says that the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, or excuse me, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he says the second one is just like it. That you need to love your neighbor as yourself. All right? And then he, he kind of says this is all that there is. This is the greatest two commandments. That if you'll do these two things, you'll fulfill everything else. If you'll love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, if you'll love your neighbors yourself, that sums up the whole Old Testament. All the prophets, all the other laws, they're, they're encapsulated in those two things. So if you do those, you've got everything else. But then we're kind of left with this question of, well, how do we do that? What does it look like? If we truly love God with all of our heart, you see, because Jesus doesn't really expound on that. He doesn't tell us this is what this looks like. And so we're left with this question of how do we love God with all our heart? What kind of heart do we need to demonstrate this love for God? And this is a valid question. And so what we have to do then is what I said earlier is we have to look at other passages of Scripture to see what that looks like. What does it look like? To have a heart that truly loves God. And the reason that Jesus didn't have to expound on that is because he's already told us. In fact, he tells us in Proverbs 3 what it looks like to love God with all our heart. And then later in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week, he tells us what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to spend today in the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. You can go ahead and be looking that up. 
with this idea of what kind of heart do we need, um, what kind of heart demonstrates that we really love God with everything that we have, with a heart that is truly devoted to Him. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Proverbs 3. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Um, and like I said, this idea of, of loving God with a heart. And then next week, we'll read the last part of the chapter 3, which deals with the, the second command of loving our neighbor. But Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon starts off with verse 1. He says, My son, don't forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on a tablet of your heart. And you will find favor and high regard in the sight of God and men. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. Think about Him in all your ways. And He will guide you on the right paths. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strength for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come and to worship you and uh, God, I pray that we mean what we sang just a, a few minutes ago, a few seconds ago. Uh, God, that this is our heart. Here we are. And God, we are highly anticipating. God, we are expecting you to meet us here. God, we know that you are here. We know that you are all places. And so, God, we are expecting you to reveal yourself to us in a powerful way this morning, God. And so, God, we simply bring what we have. It is ourselves and our heart. God is broken and is shattered and is as disproportional as it may be. God, this is the only thing we have. And so, God, I pray that, again, that we mean what we sing. God, that we will lay it down to you. God, that we will lay down our heart and our life. And God, that we will desperately listen to the words of truth that you have to speak to us through your word this morning, Father. And so, God, here we are. We ask that you speak, and we ask that we listen, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you may know the name Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband uh, and her were missionaries in South America, and her husband uh, was killed by a, a group of tribesmen that he was actually trying to share the gospel with. And some of you may have heard that story. You may have seen that story. Uh, there was a movie made about it called The End of the Spear um, about his life and, and how he died and, and, and several others that were with him. Um, but Elizabeth, she continued to do ministry even after his death. Uh, she even went back to the tribe and, and, and served as a missionary to them uh, for several years after he died. And she traveled around. She wrote lots of books. She spoke with lots of things, uh, lots of different gatherings. And uh, in one of her books, she tells this story about when she was a kid. And the story kind of goes like this. that her, She had a younger brother named Tom. And her, her mom would let Tom play with the um, these paper bags, kind of like he, they don't even make them, I don't think, in grocery stores anymore, but back in the old days, and when I was a kid, they used to get, you got to the checkout line, they asked you the question, do you want paper or plastic, and um, so we used to get the paper bags, because you could recycle those, like by recycling, you could like draw on them and play with them and stuff like that, well, that's what Tom liked to do, so she would let Tom play with the paper bags, um, as long as he promised that he would clean them up once he was done, that he wouldn't leave them scattered out everywhere, 
And so she would let Tom do his. Tom would play with him. And so one day, she walked down in the kitchen, and she found all these paper bags scattered out all over the floor. They were everywhere. And she wasn't, this wasn't out of the ordinary because this is how Tom played with the paper bags, except the problem was that Tom wasn't in the room with the paper bags, which means that he hadn't fulfilled his promise to, to clean them up. What Tom was doing was he was in the next room because his dad was playing on the piano and him and his dad were singing songs together. They were actually singing some old hymns together. And so his mom called him into the kitchen and said, Tom, I need you to come clean this stuff up. And he's like, but I don't want to, which is, by the way, never what you tell your parent, okay? And she said, no, you promised that you would clean this up. You need to come clean this up. And he said, but mom, I'm singing Jesus Loves Me. And his dad stopped in his tracks and looked down at the sun and said, son, it's no good singing the praises of God if you're not going to listen to what he said in the first place. It's better to obey than to have any sacrifice that comes afterwards. You see, that's the lesson that Solomon is teaching his son here in the opening verses of Proverbs 3, that if we're going to love God, if we're going to demonstrate that we're loving Him with all of our heart, the first thing we have to do is have an obedient heart, that we're going to listen to what He says. And so the first step of loving God with all your heart is that we have to have a heart that's ready to obey what He says. And if we read in Proverbs 3, you're going to notice this pattern that goes back and forth. And In fact, it's this odd, even pattern. The odd verses, if you read through the whole thing, the odd verses are exhortations. They tell you what to do. The even verses that come after them are kind of a reward. If you do this, this is what you're going to get. And if you do this, this is what you're going to get. So it's kind of this, um, this odd, even pattern going back and forth. And so let's look at verse 1. It starts off with that if we love God, we're going to obey Him. Verse 1, Solomon speaks for God and he speaks for wisdom. He says, My son, don't forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commands. When I was in college, I took German um, for a couple years, and our, we had a, a professor that was, was teaching us German, actually was born in Switzerland, and then her family moved to Germany for a while, and she lived in Germany for a long time until she was about in her 30s before she moved to America. And so most of her young life was spent in Germany. In fact, she learned lots of culture. That's, that's her, she was a German, in her opinion. And so when she moved to America, there were obviously some adjustments she had to make. There were some things that she wasn't used to. And so um, one day we were in class, and we kind of talked to her about those. What are some of the adjustments? And uh, she was much older by this point. And she said um, that the hardest adjustment, one of the, one of the first adjustments that she had to do, and probably one of the hardest things to get used to, was driving in America. That it was so different than driving in Germany. You see, in Germany, they, they, that's where she learned to drive. So that's how she thought everybody drove. When you're in Germany and you get on the interstate, they call it the Autobahn, they have these blue signs. It's a blue sign that just has a number on it. Okay, And that number is usually 130. Right? Now, to us, that means nothing. But that 130 means that they suggest or they recommend that you go 130 kilometers per hour. Now, that doesn't help any of you because we don't do the metric system. So let me translate. That means about 80 miles an hour, all right? So when you see a blue, or a blue square sign with white numbers on it, that's what they recommend you go. That's the suggestion. So that they're, they're going to say, we recommend that you go 80. But if you want to go 90, if you want to go 100, if you want to go 190, that's completely up to you, Okay. This is our recommended speed suggestion for you, okay? So that's what she was used to. That's how she grew up. That's what she learned to drive under. And so when she got to America, and she hadn't been here very long, she had an international driver license that let her, let her drive here for until she got her real one. And so she got on the interstate here in America, and she saw a white rectangular sign that had a number on it. 
And she was like, oh, okay. So she started going. Well, she looked at her clock and realized she was running a little bit late. And so she decided that she needed to go a little faster to get where she needed to go. So she did. She started going faster and faster and faster and faster. And this was working out great because she was going to make it where she needed to until she got about 10 miles down the road when a police officer was sitting on the side of the road who gladly pulled her over because now at this point she was running 85 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. And so she stopped, and she, the police officer walked up to her and uh, realized real quick because of her accent that things were different. And she, said, she tried to explain to him why she didn't understand this was a problem. You see, the, the sign that she was used to was just a suggestion, that, that it wasn't a requirement. You could go as fast as you want to. The, the 80 miles an hour was just a recommendation. And so he gave her a ticket, and he said, she said, I'll never forget the words that he told me that day. As he gave me the ticket, he said, one thing you'll learn in America is we do laws and limits. We don't do recommendations and suggestions. And she learned right quick that when you see a white sign with numbers on it, that is the law. That is not a recommendation. That is not a suggestion at all. And if you overstep that recommendation or that law, you're going to pay for it, and you're going to pay for it quite severely. You see, far too often... We don't love God the way we should. We don't love God with all our heart because we treat His Word like the blue signs of the Autobahn rather than the black and white signs in America. Far too often, we see His teaching and His commands as these are just suggestions. These are just recommendations of how we maybe should live our lives. And in His Word, uh, it, it's, this is kind of an idea that if we follow this, it's good. If we don't follow this, it's all right. But we treat them like they're suggestions, and we treat them like they're recommendations. These are good ideas, and if you follow these, good. If you don't, eh, it's okay. We treat them like that today they're important, but tomorrow they may not be. We treat them like tomorrow may be different than today, so these words may not follow through. That, That today our circumstances are one thing, but tomorrow they're different. And so we treat this Word of God like it's a recommendation or like it's a suggestion rather than than it's a law. And so we treat it, we'll even say, this is our roadmap for life. But the path I pick to get where I want to is really up to me, right? Because all this does is show me all the roads that are there. And I still get to pick the one I want, right? That's not what the Word of God says. You see, to love God with all our heart means that we fully obey His commands, that we keep His laws. In fact, that's what He says in verse 1, that you keep my commands. See, these aren't just keep them when they're convenient. They aren't keep them when you feel like it. They are to keep them all the time, that they are constantly and consistently, do not forget, to hold on to these commands and constantly, consistently Follow them. Obey them. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus talks about in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says that if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so the first part of having a heart that loves God with all of our heart, or, or showing that we love God with all our heart, is that we obey all His word all the time. You see, God didn't give us a book of suggestions and recommendations. He didn't give us a book and says, hey, if you feel like it today, this is good. If you don't feel like it, take it, leave it. He gave you a book and He says, these are the commands. Follow them. Keep them. This is the Word of God. And we don't get to to have suggestions and recommendations. We get the laws and the limits the way that God defines them, not the way that we define them. But the good news is that if we follow through with verse 2, our obedient heart brings us a great reward. In verse 2, he says, For they, the teachings and commands that we obey, will bring you many days of full life 
and well-being. For you guys that are, are Star Trek fans, this is the Vulcan salute. All right? This is the live long and prosper for you. Okay? Believe it or not, the guy who did that, he was Jewish. And he actually did base it off of not this passage, but lots of Jewish passages uh, in the Old Testament. To live long and prosper is exactly this. All right? uh, Warren Wiersbe sums it up this way. He says, To obey God's word will add years to your life and life to your years. Right? So the reward of living long, excuse me, the reward of being obedient is that we live long and we have a, a prosperous life, a full life. Right? Some of your translations may say that you have a life that is full and a life that is full of peace, okay? which is not a bad translation because the Hebrew word there is shalom. Right? Now we just say that as peace, but that word really carries so much more with it. It has the idea of something being whole. Or being complete, something that is that everything is where it's supposed to be. It is the picture perfect, right? This is when you have a thousand piece puzzle and it's all scattered out everywhere and, and it is finally complete and whole when you put that last piece there, right? And then you breathe and you're like, now I see the picture. Right? Because before it was just all this chaos, all these pieces everywhere, and none of them were right. And then all of a sudden, all the pieces fit together perfect. And you have this beautiful picture that you can see from the outside and that is right in front of you. And he says, that's what you get. You don't just get a long life full of chaos. What you get is everything fitting together in your life. Everything meshing together. Everything in sync. Everything perfectly together so that you have this beautiful picture that was intended to be there in the first place. And so let me tell you this, that if you are surrounded your life, if you're looking at your life and everything is out of sync, if you feel like that you are in the puzzle box instead of the puzzle picture, meaning that, that you are surrounded by a thousand pieces in your life that looks like a thousand puzzle pieces, all flipped over, turned around, disoriented, that there's chaos and confusion in every part of your life, then maybe it's time that you look at your life and say, God, my life is a wreck. This is a mess. I don't see any picture whatsoever. Maybe it's time if you go back and say, God, listen, maybe the reason my life is not the complete picture that you told me it would be is because I didn't follow your instructions. I took them as suggestions. I, I took some of the recommendations that you gave me, and I followed them part of the time, but I didn't fully commit to them. I didn't fully obey them. And, and God, I wasn't loving you with my whole heart from the very beginning. So maybe today, if life is chaos for you, then maybe today you stop looking at the Word of God as a, a suggestion, and you start looking at it as a command to follow. You start looking at it as a, the law to live by, whether a recommendation that you can reject just whenever you want to. Because the promise is that when we follow His laws completely, when we follow His commands with all of our heart, that we will have a life that is full and a life that fits together because it fits the design that He made. It is the picture that He created in the very first place. But see, some of us will struggle to obey the commands and the words of wisdom because honestly, we don't know them. We don't have them in our life. And so we can't expect to have an obedient heart until we have the second part of the having, uh, loving God with our heart, which is simply that we have an inscribed heart. We have a heart that knows the Word of God, something that is written on. This is the second heart that we have to show that we demonstrate the love of God with. And so in verse 3, Solomon describes it this way. He says in verse 3, Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. And write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, we don't have God's word 
in our heart because we don't hear God's Word and we don't remember God's Word. In fact, we talked about this last week, this idea of, of remembering God's Word and listening to God's Word actively so it becomes part of who we are. And that's the picture that he paints here in this passage, that it is, is so important to you. And this idea of tying something around your neck is very odd to us because I've spent so many days of my life telling my kids, don't put things over your head, don't tie things around your neck. If you've got kids, you've probably used that phrase. You don't put things around your neck. That's bad. And all of a sudden, the Word of God's like, tie this around your neck. You're like, whoa, wait a second. Something's wrong with this. Okay? But to understand this passage, you've got to understand both parts. What is he talking about tying, and why is he saying to tie it around your neck? Okay? So when he uses the phrase tying or binding, as some of your translations say, then what he's talking about is, is kind of knitting it together. It's kind of tying it together so that it is stronger. All right? So it allows for support. All right. For you guys that were athletes, or you ladies that were athletes, uh, think about this, because it's probably happened to you, you've probably seen it, um, that I, as a soccer coach, had several athletes that would come to me because their ankle was weak or their, their, their ankle was hurt, and so they would need me to, to bind or tie their ankle. They'd wrap it up. Right? So I would take this tape, and I would put layers of tape on their ankle. A certain way that you tie it up, you wrap it up. And, and so the reason you do that is so it provides support for the ankle. The ankle is weak. It needs extra support. It needs some, some stability to it so that you don't twist it or you don't turn it and you don't really mess it up during a game. It's kind of a Band-Aid that you put on somebody who's going to play a game. Right? So get that in your picture, in your mind. That's the picture of an ankle or a knee or something like that being wrapped up. So when he says tie it, Bind it, wrap it up so there's support to it. So it's strengthened that way. Okay? And then we have to understand this idea of the neck. Right? Even in the, in the Old Testament, they understood the neck was essential for life. Right? We don't think about our neck that way. But the neck is essential because when you breathe in, it goes in here, but it goes down to here. Right? The only way it gets from here to here is through the neck. Right? It is essential that you have a neck. It is essential for food that you have a neck because it goes in here, but it gets down here. And the only way it does it is through your neck. All right? So the neck is the essential for life. Right? They knew that if you, um, if you broke your neck, you died. They knew that if you cut your neck deep enough, you die. They knew that if you hold somebody long enough by the neck, they die. Right? So get this, the neck is an essential part of life. And so when he puts these two ideas together to tie this around your neck, to bind these around your neck, what he's saying is the Word of God, these two commands, these commands that he gives you, they should be so close to you, they provide support for your life essentials. Meaning that they're so connected to you that without these things, your life would cease to exist. Right? That the life that you have would no longer exist. That these things are essential for living, is what he's telling you. These things should be so close to you, they should provide the support for you so that if they were removed, your life would no longer exist, that you would quickly find your demise, that if you don't follow these commands, if you don't follow loyalty and, and trustworthiness or faithfulness, if you let them leave you, then you're going to find that you don't have what is essential for life, the things that you literally depend on to give you support. It would be the same as if you cut your neck off. If you let these things leave you. So there's this, this connection. These things are essential for you to live. But then in the last part of the verse, he goes on a little deeper. And he says to write them on the tablet of your heart. Right? Now, for you and I, that's a really strange expression. But in this time, that wasn't strange at all. 
Because for them, the, the first thing they would have thought of is the story of Moses coming down the mountain with these, wood, or excuse me, these stone tablets that God had inscribed, that God had written the Ten Commandments on. As soon as you talk about tablets and commands, that's what they would go to. That was the, where their mind would go. And so in their mind, this was perfect. This is exactly what they would think of. And so the question would be, why, would, why wouldn't you just write them on paper? Why wouldn't you just write them down on something simple? Why is he specifically talking about uh, the tablets of your heart? You see, when a tablet, when you write something on a tablet, it takes energy. It takes effort to do that. All right? You write on a piece of paper, it doesn't take much. You just scribble it on there and you move on. But the difference is that piece of paper probably isn't going to last, and that piece of paper can be changed very quickly. When you write something in stone, it is permanent. It is fixed there forever. It is incapable of being changed. It is fixed there forever, and it's not going anyway. And so this is the idea we talked about with memorizing God's Word, with storing it up with inside of us, with hiding it in our hearts. It's fixed there. It's never going to move anywhere. It is permanently placed, never to be taken out of our heart. And so when our heart is in love with God the way we should be, then it's inscribed with His Word. Someone who loves God with all our heart is going to have a heart that is full of His Word. It's someone that's going to have a heart because they took time and they took energy and they took effort to make sure they were so permanently part of their heart that they put them there intentionally. They spent the energy, time, and effort to put it on the stone of their heart. If we're going to love God with all our heart, we've got to be willing to put the time and energy to love His Word because we honestly, we cannot love God with all of our heart if His Word isn't essential to us. If we're going to love Him, then we've got to love His Word. It is essential to us as much as the air we breathe, the food we intake, and the blood that runs through our veins. And if we're going to love God with all our heart, His Word has to be that essential to us. It has to be that valuable for us. One of my favorite things to do in ministry is to, uh, to help people or, or do weddings for people. And part of the, my requirements, I have two requirements for anybody that wants me to do their wedding. I've shared this with some of you guys before. My two requirements, if you ask me to be part of your wedding, is one, premarital counseling, and two, there has to be cake at your reception. Okay, Those are my two requirements. And I'm dead serious about both of those. So serious about the first one that I, when my mother, after my dad passed away and my mom was going to remarry, I made her go through premarital counseling. That's a lot of fun to premarital counsel your mom, um, but I did it. Right? The other thing, um, I'm so serious about the cake idea that one of the weddings that I was going to do, uh, my wife had to bake cupcakes for the wedding reception because I found out almost too late that they were going to have banana pudding for their reception, and that's just wrong. Okay? They love banana pudding. They have, have fun, cute story about it, but it's just wrong because I don't like banana pudding. And if I'm going to do your wedding, you got to have cake. And so I almost called the whole thing off. This couple was not going to be married until my wife volunteered to do cupcakes. I'm that serious about these two things. And so because I'm that serious about them, I always ask questions like, what kind of cake are we having? What the flavors of it are? And that's part of the premarital counseling. right? But with the premarital counseling, I'm always looking for good resources. I'm always looking for new things and, and new ways to, to, um, to invest in these couples and to help them prepare for marriage. And so I came across this article this week that, that kind of intrigued me. Um, and the article simply said this, that love is not enough to make a marriage work, but trust is. All right? And so when I read that title, I was like, you know what, I, I need to read the rest of this article because um, I, it may have something I can use. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't go back and fact check the whole article this week, and, uh, but it's pretty straightforward. And I love this quote that the guy says, and he says, trust is the central pillar supporting any real relationship. 
In fact, trust always precedes love. We can only truly love someone that we completely and fully trust. You see, when Solomon would say that that's not only true of our relationship with people, but it's also true with our relationship with God as well. The only way that we can truly love God with all our heart is if we have a heart that is fully trusting in Him. And so verse 5 and verse 6 um, in this last section we're going to work through are probably two of the most famous passages of Proverbs. Right? And, and if you know any passage of Proverbs, most likely it is verse 5 and verse 6. And especially around May or June when it comes around graduation time and people are looking for advice to give graduation or graduates, these are the passages they look for. And they are great passages for that. Uh, but the problem is they are part of a bigger section that we leave out, verses 5 through 12. This bigger idea of, hey, there are very specific areas that you need to be fully trusting God in. It's not just trust God with all your heart, but there are specifics about what that looks like. And so the very first area that we need to fully trust God is to be, uh, excuse me, the very first thing that we need to fully trust God is that we have to have a very humble foundation for our life. Solomon points this in verse 5 and verse 7. He points out the humility of it, and he points out the foundation part of it in both of those verses. And so in verse 5, he says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. This word that he uses for trust, it's a beautiful word. It literally means to lie helplessly face down. Right? So think about this. That if you are face down, you are completely defenseless at that moment. And it gives the picture of either a servant who lays face down waiting for his master's command... Or, a better picture may be this, that you are a defeated person, you're, you're defeated in battle, and so you lay face down in submission to whoever is an authority over you, whoever is, who has defeated you. Right? So now you are defeated, and so you lay face down. And the reason that's such a beautiful picture is because when you lay face down, you are completely showing that you are done. That you are finished. That you're not going to fight anymore. You don't have any weapons to fight with anymore. That you're not trusting your skills because you can't fight laying on your face. You can't do it. There's no way to do that. And so when you lay face down, what you're really doing is saying, listen, I'm going to lay face down in front of this person who is more powerful than me because honestly, I don't have the skills. I don't have the weapons. I don't have any of that. And so I'm going to lay face down because right now I'm fully trusting you with my life. Because realize that when you're face down, you are also not only defenseless, but you are very vulnerable in that moment. That they have the strength and the authority to end your life just like that. And so by laying face down, you're saying, listen, I'm going to lay face down. I'm going to show you that I'm not fighting anymore. And I'm going to trust that you, even though you could, are not going to destroy me. Because they very quickly could. They very quickly could end your life if they've gotten you to that point. And so by laying face down, you're fully trusting in the mercy of the person that is over you. You're not relying on your fighting skills. You're not relying on your weapons or your strategy. You're not relying on your understanding anymore. In verse 7, it says that you really have relinquished your claim to, to being supreme in any shape or fashion. That your, your idea at this point, when you're laying face down, you're claiming that there is wisdom and there are skills greater than yours. And so laying face down is this time that you are claiming there's an intellectual and there's a moral superior over you at that moment. Right? So we talked about this idea of understanding and knowledge. Those are the foundations that we build our lives on, the moral standards that we have and the intellect that we have. 
So if we're fully face down, if we're fully trusting God, that means we're going to allow someone else to determine our moral standards and someone else to allow um, our, our, to give us our moral standards and our intellectual standards. So someone who is building this, we're trusting them. These are the foundations of our lives, our moral understanding and our knowledge. We're going to build it, but we're not going to build it on ourselves. We're going to build it on God. Why? Because we have trusted Him. We've laid face down in front of Him, and we basically said, Listen, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your moral standards are the right ones. Your intellectual abilities are so beyond mine. Your wisdom is so superior to mine. I'm just going to trust you because anything I have compared to you is terrible. Anything I have or come up with is not right. And so I'm going to lay face down. I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to trust that you are going to set those standards for my life, and I'm going to build from those standards because those standards are far better than anything we can come up with our own. And see, we don't just trust Him with the foundations of our lives, but we also trust Him with the direction their life goes from that moment on. You see, when you're face down, then that person decides what happens next to you. And when we fully trust God, we've got to trust God not just with the here and now, but with the future and the direction that He's going to give us. In verse 6, Solomon writes it this way. He says, Think about him in all of your ways, and he will guide you on the right path. A different translation would say that he will make your path straight. And either way, it carries the idea that God will ensure you that you're on the right path that you should be, that he's going to guide you, and he's going to lead you to a destination. You see, you don't have a path when you're standing in the right place. You have a path when you're one place, but you need to get somewhere else. Right? And, and to be honest with you, all of us are charting a path somewhere because you don't just stay where you're at. All of us have a future that we're going somewhere, right? In the next 10 minutes, you're going to be somewhere else. In the next hour, you're definitely going to be somewhere else besides where you're at, either in this place or online or wherever you're at. You're going to be somewhere else. In a year from now, you're going to be somewhere else. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you're going to be somewhere else a year from now. The question is, are you going to determine your path to get where you're going to be a year from now, or are you going to let God determine that? You see, when we let God determine our path, we can look at it from two different ways. We can do it short-term, which is relative, like your life here on earth, or you can do it long-term, your eternal future. Right? Are you going to trust God with both of those? You see, when we, when we do it short-term, we say, God, this is my life. We sang that just a moment ago. Here's our heart. Here's my life. God, I'm going to trust you to do it. All right? God, I'm going to trust that you are going to get me to where I need to be in life. God, I'm going to trust you with my future. I'm going to trust you with my plans. I'm going to trust you with, with all of this that, 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 that is my life, with my career, with my college that I'm going to choose, my friends that I'm going to have, my colleagues that I'm going to be with. God, I'm going to trust you with everything because I can promise you and I can trust that you have what's best in store for me. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he talks about that he has a plan and a purpose for us. And so his plan is always, always for our good. And so we trust that His plan is always for our good. We trust that the path He puts us on and the path that we walk, as long as we're walking with Him, is always for our good. Now, it doesn't say it's going to feel good. It doesn't say it's going to look good. It doesn't say it's going to be easy. In fact, sometimes the path He walks us down leads us to the valley of dry bones. Sometimes the path He leads us on leads us to the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes the path He leads us on is rough and it's rocky and it's hard and it's difficult. And sometimes the path is so dark we can't see the next step in front of us. But we trust Him anyway because we step out on faith and we see that trusting God, loving Him with all our heart because we trust the path that we have that, that He's put us on because we know that whatever that next step is, it's for our good. 
Even though we can't see it, even though it is painful, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, something good is going to come out of this. That when God gets us to the destination He wants us to be through this valley, through this hardship, through this difficult time in our life, that when we come out on the other side, it's going to be good. Why? Because that's the promise that God has said. The plans and the purpose for your life is for your good, to make you prosper, to make you great, to make you where He wants you to be. And so we have to understand that we have to trust Him, not, with the des- not just the destination, but the direction on how to get to that destination, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. You see, we can trust Him not just with this life, but beyond this life, to our ultimate destination, to the eternal future that we have, the path that He's laid out for us. You see, the wisdom that He gives us throughout this book tells us that there's life beyond this. And the wisdom He gives us in this book is the one that tells us and points us to the fact that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. The wisdom of God is the one that points us to Christ who came to be our Savior and the one who died on the cross so that we can have salvation. The wisdom of God points us to the resurrection of Christ who says there is victory over death. The wisdom of God is the one who says that Michael Rakes and you sitting here and you watching online can have that same victory over death because you put your faith and trust in the path that led you to there, which is what God was showing you all through this book. You see, the wisdom of God says that there is victory when the world says there's defeat. The, victory, the wisdom of God says there's a path to the resurrection. There's a path to victory over death. There's a path that will lead you to eternal life. And we don't get to decide what that path is. It is laid out for us. We just simply get to trust that that path is right. We don't trust ourselves to get there. We don't rely on our own abilities to get us there. We don't trust that we're good enough or we've done enough or that we've served enough or we worked hard enough to get us there. We don't trust any of that stuff because remember how this started? We trust Him. We've laid down to Him. We shoved all of our weapons, all of our abilities, everything that we could brag about to the side, and we've simply laid down and says, God, if this is the plan that you laid out, this is the plan I'm going to go with. We simply trust that His grace and His mercy is sufficient to get even me to where I want to be, to get me to where I can trust in Him, and He is my path to all eternity. And so we trust Him, not just with the path of this life, but the path to eternal life, because it cannot happen on our terms. We trust that the path that He's laid out through His plan of redemption, through the Word of God, is sufficient for even me. And there's a third way that we demonstrate our love for God with all of our heart, and it's simply that we have to trust Him with our possessions. Now, this is the one we lose people on. Right? They're all fine when you're talking about going to heaven, but all of a sudden you talk about their money and their wallet, and they're like, well, I'm done. Some of them just signed offline just right now. They just clicked off because he's going to talk about money. All right, But we've got to trust him with our income and with our finances. In verse 9, Solomon puts it this way. He says, To honor the Lord with your possessions or with your wealth and with the first produce of your entire harvest. You see, to honor him means to graciously give in such a way that the receiver show, or knows that they are valued and they're glorified. Now, to do that... As a giver, you have to be willing to sacrifice some, right? You have to, you only have so much, and so you, you know that you've done budgets enough, you know you've balanced and, and scraped by enough that you know you can't have money and save money and spend money on yourself and give money away, right? It doesn't work that way. You can't have one dollar and spend a dollar and give a dollar. When you have one dollar, you've got to decide what you're going to do with that dollar. Right? Now, you can divide that dollar up, but see what you're doing is you're suddenly prioritizing. This is the amount of money, the income that I have, and so what am I going to do with it first? Where does the first allotment go to? 
And for many of us, the first allotment goes before we ever see it. It's our taxes and stuff like that. We don't even see that portion, right? And so we don't necessarily count that as the produce that we receive. So what many of us will do is we'll kind of budget things, right? You'll say, I'm going to allot this much for this. I'm going to spend this much on this. And I'm going to spend this much over here. And so we'll budget all these things out. And then sometimes at the very end of our budget, we'll kind of have this little bottom line over here and say, this is God's portion over here. And so what we'll do is we'll spend throughout the month. And at the end of the month, we come to the end of the month, and we'll give God the extra. We'll give God what is left over. And so typically when that happens, most of us come to the end of the month and either A, there's nothing left over, or B, what we thought was going to be left over, this amount we were going to give God, is nowhere near what we thought it was going to be. There's either nothing there or there's a whole lot less because suddenly we started to prioritize a little bit here and a little bit there. And we started to say, oh, it's just a little bit, just a little bit of amount of money here, a little bit of amount of money there. I saw something on Facebook, um, and I don't know who posted, maybe somebody in the room, maybe somebody online. Um, the easiest way to spend $10,000 in a year is like $27 a day, right? Think about that. $27 a day adds up to over $10,000 a year. Now, most of us, we can, we can justify $27. It's just $27. That's nothing. And we don't think about that's over $10,000 a year if we just spend $27. I mean, you go out to eat a couple times and take my family out to eat, and you're well, well over $27 a day, all right? And so we do that, we justify that without thinking, man, this is going to add up in the long run. So we prioritize those things, and all of a sudden we kind of we negotiate it with ourselves, and we say, well, this is all right, it's just a little bit here, a little bit there. And what we end up doing is we wind up at the end of the month with no excess to give to God. And part of the reason that's a problem is because when we're really just giving God the excess, what we're doing is we're giving Him the leftovers. We prioritize everything else, and we, everything else gets what it needs. But when we get to the bottom of our budget, our calendar, our month, our income... We'll just give God what's left, and that's going to be good enough. You see, that's not honoring God because it doesn't demonstrate trust at all. If we're going to love God with all our heart, we have to prioritize Him in our finances. It is the principle of first fruits that Solomon talked about in verse 9. At the very end of verse 9, it says, he honors, or You should honor the Lord with your possessions in the first produce of your entire harvest. And so when you're giving to God, don't give your leftovers. Give your first. Give your best. When you prioritize Him with your finances, and so you kind of think of this, when a farmer is planting a field and all of a sudden he gets the very first thing, he takes that and he says, all right, I can eat this apple or I can give this to God. That's my two choices. If I give it to God, it means I'm trusting that God's going to give me a second apple. It means I'm trusting God that God's going to provide something else for me to eat because He promised He would. Right? So when you give to God first, there's a whole different level of trust there because what you've done is you said, God, I'm going to prioritize you. I'm going to give to you first. One, because I recognize you gave it to me and I'm only giving part of it back to you. But two, I'm going to trust that if I have a need, you're going to meet that need. And so I'm going to give to you first because you met this need, and I'm going to trust that you're going to meet every need I have after this. Not every want you have, every need that you have. And so we prioritize God. We give to Him first. It means that we completely trust Him to meet every need that we have. It means that we trust in Him to provide this paycheck, and we're going to trust Him to provide paychecks before. It means that we trust Him with this food on our table, and we're going to trust Him with the food in the future. The roof over our head, He's provided it for us, and He's going to keep providing for us. You see, someone said that you can tell the greatest loves of a man's life by looking at two things, his checkbook and his schedule. 
If you can look at a person's checkbook and their schedule, you can find out what they love and what they prioritize more than anything else. If we're going to love God with all of our heart, then we have to trust Him with our finances and with our possessions. If we're willing to honor Him, then we've got to prioritize giving to Him over spending or over saving or anything else in our life. You see, if we're going to love God with all our heart, we've got to love Him with all of our wallet as well. We've got to love Him with all of our resources that He has given us and trust Him that if He gave it to us the first time, He's going to give it to us again. You see, the promise of verse 10 is that if you'll do that, then you will never have need again. Your barn will overflow, is what it says. He will meet all the needs that you have. But there's one final area of trusting God, and to be honest with you, it, it's even harder than the last one we just talk, talked about. This is the most difficult of all, is that we have to trust God to discipline us when we need it. See, a heart that truly loves God will trust God even when He disciplines us. And Solomon encourages us not only to trust God's discipline, but actually to welcome His discipline in our life. In verse 11, he says, Do not despise the Lord's instructions, my son, and do not loathe His discipline. So if you despise something, if you loathe something, it means that you hate it, that you reject it. And so he says, don't do that. If you don't hate it, you don't reject it, it means that you actually, the opposite of that, you welcome it in. We welcome God's instructions. We welcome His discipline. We welcome His correction. Now, there, there are all kinds of different reasons and, and ways that God can do this. Right? There's reasons that God disciplines us. There's reasons that God corrects us. And nobody likes the being corrected, but there's reasons that God does this. He brings or allows some kind of discomfort or affliction in our lives. And so one of the reasons He does that is because there's sin in your life that needs to be gotten rid of. And so He's going to make you uncomfortable until you get rid of that sin. He may do it to discourage you from embracing a sin that you thought you'd walked away from, but you keep coming back to. He may do it as kind of a course correction or directing your path because there's something in the path that you're walking on that's going to be bad for you. And so he's going to correct you off of that path. Even though it looks nice, it feels nice at the time, he's going to correct you off that path onto the right path because there's something ahead of you that's dangerous that you don't even know about. And so he's going to prevent you from walking the dangerous path. He's going to make sure you're headed in the right direction. And he disciplines us in so many different ways. One, of the, one way he does it is through kind of the direct conviction of the Holy Spirit. That when we have the Holy Spirit, he will inwardly convict us and inwardly cause us discomfort so that we can be corrected. Sometimes he uses other people, either critics or adversaries. Sometimes he'll use our own circumstances. And so we'll anticipate something, but it doesn't happen, and we're disappointed. And so we're upset. And God's like, you were upset because you were looking in the wrong direction in the first place. You see, he's got all kinds of ways and reasons that he disciplines us. But what we can know is that we welcome it and we trust it because it is always done for our good and always done out of love. You see, in fact, he tells us that his discipline is actually a sign that he loves us. In verse 12, Solomon writes this, he says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. Several years ago when I was teaching, um, I had a couple students that came to class early and they were sitting there talking. Um, and, and I heard one of them complaining about her parents and how strict her parents were. And her parents always had to know where she was at. Her parents always had a curfew for her. Her parents always had to do this, always did that, always told her no. Anytime she she wanted to do something extra, her parents would tell her no. And anytime she wanted to stay out past her curfew, the answer was always no. And if she was out even with the school group or with the sports team with the school group, and they were going to be later than when she was told them she'd be back, she'd have to call them or text them and tell them, this is where we're at and this is what's going on. And so the girl just kept going on and on and on about how she was just... 
Uh, her parents were just really so strict and how um, they, every time she asked about her curfew and, and getting extended, she said they would say no. And, and so finally her friend who was sitting there listening to this conversation, I overheard all this, her friend just looked at her and said, man, I really wish my parents cared as much about me as your parents care about you. And so here's this girl kind of shocked because all she's doing is complaining about her parents and how strict they are and how I have all these rules and, and how they never let her have any fun. And the girl looks at her and says, I wish my parents cared much about me as your parents care about you. And she said, what do you mean? Did you not hear what I said about my parents? They're awful. They're so strict. And she said, my parents don't even care if I come home at night, much less if I'm there by 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. My parents could care less if I'm late. My parents couldn't care less if I never even showed up at home the night before. As long as I'm not in jail, my parents don't care where I'm at or what I'm doing. My life is completely mine, and I'm free to do what I want. And you see, I wish that I had parents that loved me enough that sometimes they would tell me no. And I've held on to those words for all these years because sometimes we need to remember that God loves us enough to tell us no. We need to be reminded that He loves us enough to correct us when we need it. We need to be reminded that He loves us enough to make us uncomfortable when we are wrong and we are on the right path rather than just leaving us to our own destruction. Because do you realize that when we trust our own instincts, when we trust our own understanding, when we lean on our own ways, we are headed to a path of destruction. And God loves you enough that He's not going to let that happen to you. He's like a parent who sees a kid heading for danger and he makes a choice that I'm going to correct this kid before they get into danger we need to be reminded that God loves us enough to tell us no. We need to be reminded that God loves us enough to make us uncomfortable enough that He doesn't lead us into the the path of destruction that we're walking. Instead, He loves us enough and He cares for us enough that He makes us uncomfortable and He corrects us when we need it. You see, God discipline was never felt good but we trust it because it is always good. We love Him with all of our heart. It means that we not only trust His discipline, but that we welcome it into our lives because we love Him because He first loved us enough to correct us. He first loved us enough to send His Son to die for us because the path we were on, we're going to lead to our destruction. We love Him because He loved us enough and first to correct the path that we were on. And so we don't only just trust His discipline, we want it in our lives. We desperately should cry out for it. And so this morning, do you love God with all your heart is the question. Do you not only trust His discipline, but do you aspire to have it in your life? Do you look at the Word of God with a desperation saying, God, if there is something in my life that is displeasing you, if I'm on the wrong path, God, I'm calling out to you for your wisdom that you would show it to me. And God, make me so uncomfortable in doing that that I don't have a choice but to turn back to you in the path that you have for me this morning. See, that's what it looks like to love God with all your heart. Let's pray together.